All right. We are in um, week four of our series on counterfeit habits. In this uh, series, we've said it every week, but let me uh, kind of explain what I mean by that because it's not a, necessarily a common phrase. Uh, for anybody who's uh, tracking with us for the very first time today, uh, counterfeit habits are basically habits um, that get in the way of their, their, their habits. They can be good, they can be bad, but they get in the way of, of the really best habits that we should have. Um, and the reason I say they can be good or they can be bad is sometimes we have good habits um, that are the enemy of a great habit that we need to install. Um, and this happens in a number of different areas of life. And every week I've made it accessible by giving you examples from my life of some counterfeit habits that I have. And this one is actually brought to you. Um, if you're at the 8 o'clock service, you heard me say this last week. But after last week's service, uh, first two morning services, uh, I got home, we're eating lunch. And um, if you're married, you know this conversation when they say, you know, you got another counterfeit habit you should talk about. I'm <laughs> like, I would rather not, you know? Yeah, I'm okay. Um, but, but the counterfeit habit, as I, as I gave the example of my laundry and how you have the pile, and the pile is defined by clothes that are too clean to be dirty and too dirty to be clean, and so you don't want to contaminate, nor do you want to, you know, you only got so many washes in any particular item before it turns weird, but that's also kind of cool these days. It's like, man, the more holes, the better, right? And so... Um, and so Lindsay goes, well, you know, you also, um, you don't just do that with dirty clothes, you also do it with your clean clothes. And I was like, hmm, what do you mean? Well, you, um, whenever we wash the clothes and they're folded, um, you don't necessarily put them away. You put them out of the way on top of the dresser. And I'm like, do we not value efficiency in this household? You know what I mean? Like, who has time to pull that all the way out? That's ridiculous, right? No. But the reality is, is that I should put that stuff away. They, should sit, they shouldn't sit up there. But nine times out of ten, I'm just like, okay, let me put, get those out of the way, put them on top of the dresser, never to be put in a drawer again. And so that is a counterfeit habit of mine. And as, as kind of introductory as that is, the reason I say it is because we have those spiritually. We all have those spiritually in different areas. And so this series exposes different areas that that has a tendency to be true of us. For instance, week one, we talked about time in the Word. Spending time in God's word. And the reason that's important is, number one, is, is we believe that the, that the scriptures are the inspired word of God, which means that God speaks to us through his word. The Holy Spirit speaks to us through his word. And just like me and you, if we were to grow in a relationship together, our relationship would grow as we spend time together and as we communicate together. And for some reason, because God's invisible, we think that the ideas of relationship aren't bound to him when they are, when it's simply to say, we will grow in our relationship with God as we spend time with God. And the primary way that God speaks to us is through his word. The primary way that we speak to God is through prayer, although we live in a day and age where it's popular to pray but not popular to read the Bible. Well, I just want you to take any friendship that you have and say, hey, I'm just going to talk to you. Don't ever say anything back. That wouldn't be a very good relationship, would it? But what we do as a counterfeit habit is some of us, because we come to church on Sunday and you hear me talk about the Bible, will be an excuse for you not to read the Bible. And is this good? I hope so. But is it what's best? Should it come at the expense of? Absolutely not. In fact, if you're in like deep into Christian culture, you know this. We live in the Christian podcast sermon culture where we feel a sense of glorification. We found this new podcast and this new sermon by this different celebrity pastor. And it's like, dude, have you heard this one? No, I was busy reading my Bible, chump, right? Ooh, you shouldn't say that. that's not a super loving thing to say. That's what I think, though, you know? Kick rocks, I read it already. I got where he got it from, so thank you very much. Now, 
Now, is listening to sermons good? Of course. Is podcast good? Of course. But when it comes to our time in the Word, oftentimes it can create a false habit or a counterfeit habit that we feel like we've interacted with God because we interacted by listening with somebody that was talking about God's Word. But there's nothing like going to God's word for yourself. There's nothing about how the spirit of God connects in your heart and changes you as you spend time with God. And the coolest thing is many of you, as we've gone through this 22 days in the word, we've been going through the book of John together, many of you have connected and grown like never before. And you didn't do anything crazy. You just read a chapter, the day, and thought about it. And all of a sudden you grew. We try to make this so difficult and complex and confounding and spiritual and mystical. And there are spiritual components to it. But what if it was simply just us spending time with God, we're growing in a relationship with him? I talked about prayer, how prayer is oftentimes in our world. We put a quarter in the vending machine of God, hoping that if we put the right quarter in at the right angle and put the right button, then God will drop out our prayer request. But what if prayer was... What if us telling God what was going on was a part of prayer? But what if Jesus in his, his teaching on prayer said, by the way, God knows what you need before you ask it. To which we would ask, why do we pray? God would say, exactly. Let me tell you. Pray to your heavenly father. He says, our father who art in heaven or who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Set apart is your name. Holy is your name. That when we pray to God, we don't just pray to this deity, this like dude that's on the side of the road. We pray to a God who is holy, who we should not be allowed in his presence, but not only is he holy and powerful, he is also our father. He is intimate. He is with us and he is for us. And so then Jesus moves and says, and so God, before I tell you anything about what's going on in my life, your will be done. Your will be done. I want your will, not my will. I know what my will is, but I I want you, because you're in heaven, because you are greater, because you know more, I want your will to be done in my life, not my will to be done. And it's going to take me some time in prayer to bend my will towards yours. What if that was the purpose of prayer? To acknowledge the greatness and the glory of God and that he is intimate with us and that we are to submit to him. And again, that's easy to say, but i got a test coming up. But it's difficult to say. When you have someone that you love deeply and dearly and their life is hanging on the balance at the hospital, to say, God, your will be done. So today I'm going to talk about the one that's probably the easiest to miss, I think. I think they're all relatively easy to miss. But today I want to talk about community. Community, and community is interesting because community, it's one of those words that we all define generally speaking. Community can be the geographical proximal context in which you live. Community can be the, the company that you keep, the friends that you have. And community can be something much, much deeper. And the Bible calls us to community. The Bible calls us to community. The Bible calls us to community in this way. Um, let me just kind of give you a, a bunch of different verses to kind of back up what I'm going to say as a definition to community. But let me give you the thoughts about it first. Galatians 6, Paul speaking, he's our writing, and he says, I want you to carry one another's burdens, and in doing so, fulfill the law of Christ. 
I want you to care to the Lord. In other words, true community, true biblical community is, is experienced when, when you have a burden and you're able to talk about it to a group of people. And I have a burden and I'm going to be able to talk about it to a group of people or a couple of people. And we are to carry one another's burdens. We're to love one another, pray for one another, serve one another. But it's also a place in a context in which I feel okay and I feel comfortable and I feel safe enough to share my burdens. Now, universally, we all have a difficult time with that. If you're older, you don't like to acknowledge the burdens and the difficulties that you have because the older you get, the more people expect you to know the answers, right? This is why you can have something massive going on in your family and you're terrified to tell your friends and because your generation was a generation who never shared anything and it was all in the family. Young people, we do the same thing. We just call it something different. We just say we just don't want to be a burden to our friends, I don't really want to be a burden to them. I just don't want to think this, and I just I want them to be able to count on me. We oftentimes have a unilateral version of community where I don't want to be a burden to you, but I'm okay with you being a burden to me. And really what that just says is I'm comfortable knowing your stuff. I'm just not comfortable with you knowing mine. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 4 says this, Two are better than one, for they have a better return for their work. Economies of scales that work there. For if one falls, who's there to pick him up? But if two were there, you know, he has someone there to help pick him up. And a cord of three strands is not easily broken. In other words, part of this community thing is the acknowledgement that we're all going to fall. We're all going to struggle. We're all going to have difficulties. And so we're to help one another up. In addition to those, um, Proverbs. And I love Proverbs because it's, it's just, it's great wisdom. And it's, and it's really meaningful. I want to... I want to read a little bit, a little bit of this to you. Wrong tab. And this is perhaps a verse you've heard before, but it says, "As iron sharpens iron." This is what I'm reading: "As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another." Let me tell you my thesis. And let me tell you the counterfeit off the bat. Usually I've been kind of like talking about stuff for a while, and then I'll introduce kind of the counterfeit about two-thirds of the way into the sermon. Let me tell you what I think the opposite, what, what I think is the counterfeit to true community, friends. Can you be friends with people are you in community with? Absolutely. But because you are friends with them, does that mean you're community, in community with them? Absolutely not. Here's the premise. Here's what I'm arguing for. Friendships make us happy. Community makes us holy. Friendships make us happy, and community makes us holy. And can community also make us happy? Yes. But the primary purpose and vehicle of God's usefulness to us on planet Earth is iron sharpening iron, carrying one another's burdens, helping one another up, praying for one another. And as we do, we look and live more like Jesus. But friendship exists in some way, shapes, and forms to make me happy or to make you happy. Right? Like, like no one wants to be a burdensome friend. Or at least you probably don't. Some of you, you're like, oh, I just need to like unload everything. Well, you need to go to a therapist, too. Which is not weird. You, we all should. Anyways, here's what I'm saying. Friendships exist, and, and they're wonderful. They're awesome, of course. We all like to have fun. We all like to do that. But there's a big difference between me being friends with somebody and me being in community with someone. And let me tell you, besides the idea of just simply sharpening iron, the way that iron sharpens iron, in case you didn't know this, is through friction. 
And with friends, we like to avoid friction. And when the presence of friction is apparent, we then run from or find different friend groups. Because if the point is to make me happy, then why would I embrace friction and tension? But community exists in the presence of tension. Because in the presence of tension is when we actually grow. Jesus, John 17, we read this a couple days ago, prayed one thing for his disciples. Last prayer on the planet. Last prayer before the cross. He was done teaching. He was done preaching. He was done with miracles. The only thing left was the cross. And he prays for his disciples. And then he prays for everybody who will believe. And the one thing he prays for, not like the first thing, the one thing, the only thing, is God, I pray that you would make them one. As I am in you and you are in me and I am in them, would you make them one in us? You wonder why he prayed that? Because he knew it was going to be difficult. The presence of that prayer is implicit towards the presence of tension and friction in relationships. And to be clear, the reason I want to talk about this is we live in an age of such extraordinary polarization. If you don't fit the exact theology, ideology, political worldview, social thoughts towards where we ought to be and what we ought to do and how we ought to value, if you don't fit into the same thing, the same ideas, and the same concepts as me, well, I just can't deal with the inner anxiety. And so it's better for us to not be in community. But you know what's crazy about the early church? They didn't have that option. They couldn't go to Third Baptist and Second United Methodist and Fourth Denominate, non-denominational church that starts with the letter E or calls community in the title, right? Like, like they just they didn't have that ability. And if necessity breeds innovation, they had to innovate and they had to figure out how do we exist in this same context with the presence of tension. And so I think what's actually the true enemy of community. Is preference in the absence of tension because we exchange it for the presence of friendship. Now, I don't want to just tell you this what my thought is. Let me show you why this is important. In the early church, they faced the same thing we do. In the early church, there was incredible tension. In fact, more so than us. Because for the entire history of the Jewish nation of Israel's history, it was a church, it was a group, it was a people that was singular, called out specifically and specified to be the people of God meant to glorify God. Well, Jesus came, and basically the nation of Israel was never supposed to be exclusive to God. They were, just, just, they were supposed to show the entire world that this is God, that the entire world would see, see the way they lived, the way that they behaved, the way that they loved, the way that they served, and they'd say, oh, that God's the right God, that God's the real God. Well, Jesus comes in and says, okay, I'm for all people. And this created an ethnocentric, ideological, political, I mean, every type of clash. When the Jewish folks came in with the Gentile folks, there was a huge convergence. And into that tension, into that polarization, Paul speaks in Romans 14. He brings out a couple of problems that they had. Starting at verse 1, he says, So accept the one who is, whose faith is weak. Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling 
or over disputable matters. Each person's faith allows them to eat anything. Or one person's faith, I'm sorry, allows them to eat anything. But another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. Now, as the owner of a meat company, I am very thankful for this verse, right? I'm just like, man, you're a vegetarian. I'm so sorry for your weak faith. That's not what he's saying. Let me give you a little context that makes this really fascinating. So there's two different versions of an aversion to meat that they would have in their day. Um, One was for the historically Jewish folks. Their entire life, they felt like their worth to God was how well they observed the Jewish laws. And one of those Jewish laws was that you were to avoid pork. Now, we make sausage. That's a problem. I'm glad Jesus clarified that in the New Testament again. But the other version of that is there was a group of people who were the Gentiles who their entire life in temple, there was food that had been sacrificed or, or animals that had been sacrificed to idols. Well, after those animals that are sacrificed to idols to appease their gods, it would oftentimes be sold in the market and oftentimes at discount. And if you know Christians, we love a good deal, right? So we go to Costco. So what happens is, is they're coming under this roof, and there's some people who realize, man, all things are clean in Jesus, that we have the liberty and the freedom to eat all things. That if it was sacrificed to an idol, he's going to talk about this in Corinthians, it's really not an idol because it's really no other gods except for God. But if this was kind of meant for the Gentiles or kind of meant for the Jews, he goes into some specificity here in verse 5. He says this. He says, one person, we give another controversy, considers one day more sacred than another. And another considers every day alike. So each should be fully convinced in his own mind. And I love that he says that because I think the tendency there is to say, okay, well, if we hold differences then we should just trivialize the differences, right? We should just say, ah, it really doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter what I think. It really doesn't matter what you think. He said, no, 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 here's what I want you to do. I want you to be fully convinced. He's going to say in a couple of verses, because each of us is going to stand before God, and that's important because I can say I'm fully convinced, which really doesn't mean I'm fully convinced. It really just means I fully like my preference, and so I'm going to tell you that I'm fully convinced. He says, hey, whether you're lying to me or not, you're going to stand before God one day, which really is saying to say, only God can judge me. That's the problem. He will. That should, like, terrify us. So that shouldn't be, like, a caveat. Bro, if you can't stand against my judgment, good luck against almighty God. Now, Jesus has created a way through that that we don't face the judgment and the punishment for our sins. But he looks at him and he says, you can fool me, but you can't fool God. Now, he continues, 1 Corinthians 8. He goes into some specific things on this. 1 Corinthians 8, this in the church's court. They were a wild bunch. They were, man, not as much Jewish, a little bit more of the Gentile, and a whole lot of crazy. This was like Vegas meets spring break was the, was the place of Corinth, right? And so they were living, they, they were living in like the, the I'm not going to call any fraternities or sororities out by name, but we're just going to say they were kind of like a crazy one of those, right? And it was just wild and all this kind of stuff. And if you're one of those, be a light. That's awesome. So glad that you're there. Um, Verse 10, or sorry, verse 1. He says, now about food sacrifice to idols, we know, we know that we all possess knowledge. 
But knowledge puffs up while love builds up. He says knowledge puffs us up and love builds up. And so those who think they, are, they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. In other words, those who think that they, ought to, that they know something, man, you probably don't know it as you ought to know it if what you know builds you up. Now, here's what I love about Paul said in Romans 14. He says, I want you to be conscious of those who are weak in faith. Who don't, who those who, who don't truly understand the outer workings of the gospel. You want to know what's the best part about that? None of us think we're the weak ones. You ever notice that? We're all like, oh, yeah, no, I, okay, I get that. I'll, may, I'll, be, I'll be conscious. He's like, no, 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 there's, there's areas that you're weak in. Because here was the beauty of what was the tension. Because of their Jewish heritage... They saw that food sacrifice to idols are actually not significant because we don't believe that those other deities actually exist. We believe there's one God, not a pantheism of gods. So, yeah, I mean, you sacrifice a chicken to that speaker, I'm still going to buy it on BOGO, right? That was their, their point. And they saw that clearly. But they also had this history and this tradition that what they had experienced was that there is a day or there is a set of days that are holy, and we ought to observe those. You can't miss this. Because of their background and their context, both parties had areas that they saw the implications of the gospel with clarity, and both parties had places and areas that they saw the implications of the gospel cloudy, and they both thought they were right in all of the areas, and until they existed in community, would they not have realized, there's some areas I'm wrong. Let me say it differently. There are some areas where you know Jesus incorrectly. We know that because Romans 11, we don't have to shy with it. It's like, oh, that's a controversial statement. Just read Romans 11, 35, 33 through 35, where he basically says, man, who knows the mind of the Lord? Who can chart out his ways? His ways are beyond comprehension. In other words, none of us fully grasps, understands, conceptualizes, and can articulate God correctly because he's God. We try to. We grasp for. We want to know better. We want to know more. But does anybody have it figured out? No. But the thing is, is I should be fully convinced of the things that I think, meanwhile making space for you, because it's not till you enter my life that I actually understand Jesus more clearly. We will never, we will never see Jesus through the eyes of me. We will never fully see Jesus through the eyes of me. That we see Jesus more clearly through the eyes of we than we do of me. And here is the problem that I feel like he's just not talking about enough. I'm not talking about enough. Is that in the presence of our disagreements, in the presence of the friction of community, where we disagree is exactly the point. Because there's areas that you're right and there's areas that I'm right. And until we actually join together, none of us see Jesus clearly. But through the eyes of we, we see, by the way, how Jesus prayed, our heavenly Father more clearly. So this is how he says to do it. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world. And that there is no God but one. In other words, hey, there, there's doctrinal clarity in this. There is a right in this. This is what we know. 
But what do you do with what you know? Right, this, is, this is where the tension, this is where the friction is. Well, where does truth step in and where does grace step in and where does allowance and caveats for others step in? He said, no, 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 I know it. I get it. I see this with clarity. I know what the outer working of the gospel is. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. In other words, yeah, there's, there's a ton of things that people bow down to and say, you're God, you're Lord. We don't have a totem pole like we would kind of view them. By the way, they didn't really have totem poles either. That was a different thing. Uh, but we have stuff like success. We have stuff like popularity. We have stuff like comfort. We have stuff like, like uh, attractiveness or followership on, on social media platforms. We have a ton of different versions of this. He says, yet for us, there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. In other words, not everybody gets it. Some people are so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial foods, um, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a God. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God, and we are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. Now, here's what he's about to get into. So what should I do? So what should I do if I feel like I see the gospel clearly, I feel like you don't, and I feel like there's a tension in our relationship? Most of us, we would answer that question, well, I'll tell you what we do. We sit down, and we have a coffee, and we lovingly rebuke them. Hey, I know, I know you, you don't even know how to say it, right? Like, I, know, I know you're wrong, so let me eliminate to you where and how you're wrong because I don't want you to impede on the reality, and I want you to restrict the restrictions of my freedoms and my rights. So at the end of the day, that's kind of what it is, right? If this is how I feel like I'm allowed to live in our culture, the worst thing that you can do is to impede on my ability to live in that way, because I have a right to it. You do. But here's what he says. Be careful. In other words, when you feel that, when you experience that, when you see that tension, be careful that the exercise of your right does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all of your knowledge, because again, knowledge puffs up. Not knowledge makes you feel like I'm right. Knowledge brings in self-righteousness. With all your knowledge, eating at an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So, this weak brother or sister, for whom Christ died, is destroyed by your knowledge. If you consider yourself a mature Christian, this verse should terrify us. Because no one does this on purpose. But what this means is it's entirely possible for us to have a desire and a passion for God and a desire and a passion for truth and our desire, for passion, desire and passion for truth to be expressed in us and through us and in a loving way to the other person. What that means is we can actually destroy the person who Christ died for because it's our right. You know what Jesus did? Philippians 2 says it this way. He did not consider equality with God, the fact that he was God, something to be grasped, or leveraged. He had the right to, 100%. 
But he realized for, for him to just come in and pull the God card and say, I'm here, angels, let's roll. We're about to annihilate this place. Sinner, bam, 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 lightning bolt, lightning bolt, lightning bolt, right? Like he says, man, instead of doing that, what I actually did was the opposite. What I actually did was to empty myself, make myself nothing, and take in the very nature of a servant. He laid aside his heavenly, priestly, deity rights to make room and space to serve. So the sweet brother or sister whom you, for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. And I know that there's pushback against this because it gets messy. At what place does truth come in? And at what place does the withholding of truth actually become a lack of love? At what point are we not saying the truth because it's fear of man, not love and service of man? Let me, let me just be very, very clear. I, personally, have zero interest in settling the internal tension that you feel in being obedient to Jesus. I'm just saying let's be obedient to Jesus and figure out how to navigate it with the internal tension of it. But if we choose not to, when you sin, verse 12, when you sin against them in this way, and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. So you can exercise your right. And you have every right to exercise your right in our country. But perhaps this was what the church was supposed to be. Not a group of people who all are the same people, but perhaps a group of beautifully diverse people Every tribe, tongue, and nation coming together. And perhaps Jesus was on to something when he prayed in John 17. And he said, Father, may they be one as I am in you and you in me. May they be one in us so that the world may know that you are my disciples. Perhaps the hallmark of the church is not their proclivity towards being exclusive if you don't fit into this one specific box. But perhaps the, the, the hallmark of the church was a group of people who loved and served and made space and set aside their rights so they could make space for the other person. He says, so therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to sin or fall into sin, I will never eat meat. Again, I'm praying that's not the take-home application for this verse from you, by the way. So that I will not cause them to fall. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, hey, I'll do whatever it takes to make space for you. And again, I can't tell you how important this is. The reason that making space for other people with whom you disagree is so incredibly important is because none of us know the areas we're wrong until we have a, uh, a community of people who are different than us, who we're honestly and authentically and in transparency sharing with. Because there's areas that you're wrong. There's areas that I'm wrong. And if I decide that I'm right and in my rightness don't make space for what I perceive as your wrongness, I'll never know my wrongness. Now, take it out of the spiritual for a second. We all know this because you have friends and friend groups. Isn't this true? There are things inside of each friend that you have that only the other friends around can, can bring out. C.S. Lewis talked about this. He had a friend. There's a, a few of his friends, and, and one of them passed away. And when one of them passed away, he was so excited. He was, he was heartbroken for one friend, but excited that he was going to get the other friend all to himself. And so in that context, C.S. Lewis says, man, so I was spending time with this friend, and I realized that there's things about this friend that are only brought out by my other friend. In other words, I don't understand this person fully until I understand this person in community. 
And you know that. I mean, there's things that like when William and I hang out, it's like one thing. And then Jeff hangs out, and the conversation slows way down. You know, Jeff, I was thinking. It's like, you weren't thinking fast, dude. Just playing, I love Jeff. And then Eric hangs out, and there's never a dead space in the conversation. It's like, da 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 You know, and it's just like, all of a sudden, the whole dynamic's flipped, and it's a lot more fun, but it's also a lot more like gray area, we'll say, you know. And then you throw some other people in there. You throw like a David Grulick in there, and then it's just like the whole thing flips. The Spargo, we were hanging out the other day, and the, you know what I mean? Like all these different things and people and places and spaces. All of a sudden, I had a buddy named Brendan Lada, and when he joins any part of any crew, you go from like driving in a golf cart to dancing on top of the golf cart. Literally have pictures of that, right? Like, like you have friends who when they get together, you see each other more fully. And if we as people only view God individually, If that's true of us, people, how much more true of that, of limitless God? How much are we limiting and creating a myopic view because we refuse to live in the tension of diverse community? Not only do I sin against my brother, but I don't see Jesus clearly when that happens. And we're all at different places with this. For some of you, the truth is, is you have friends, but you don't have community. And if that's you, I can't suggest enough. Find it. Join a community group. That is what they are purposed for. Will you be friends with them? Maybe, probably. But the hope is that it drills down and there's burdens shared and insights gained and you're able to see how someone else sees God and grow from that in which they see. That you're able to see Jesus more clearly. So if you're not in a group, join a group. For some of your groups, to be honest, there's a line of shame that you guys have not gone under. You will discuss for hours what you think about the potential of Tom Brady's retirement but refuse to share, this is the problem with my marriage. I'm in debt and I can't get out and I'm over my head and I'm flailing and I don't know what to do. Man, with my kids, with my boyfriend, with my girlfriend, with myself, with my depression, with my anxiety. Man, there should be a place where you're able to talk about that, grow from that. And some of you, you have. And in my experience, you can draw a direct line around the people who have wonderful, authentic, messy, difficult, tension-filled community. And you can clearly see that line by the spiritual growth that has taken place in their life. I'll just say this, it's incredibly difficult to be truly engaged in community and not grow spiritually. Or, we could just have friends. We can just show up on a Sunday and high five and be as surface level as we want to. And and let me just end by saying this. Is it messy? Yep. Tension filled? Yep. Is that the point? Yep. 
But if you're in here and your story is that you don't want to because you've experienced church hurt, because somewhere along the way you got close to a group of people and those group, that group of people were, were actually more hurtful than they were helpful, maybe they were speaking truth and love. Maybe they were trying their best. But there's a really good chance that the reason that that happened is because you had a group of people who would not lay aside their rights to be in community. We're more obsessed with this is what I have the right to than how can I love and serve and make space for you. And I'm excited about all the, the emails I'm going to get about what does, where does truth integrate with this and doctrine integrate with this and theology and didn't Paul tell Timothy, teach sound doctrine? Yeah. But I think we're pretty good at dividing over that at this point. What if we just swung the other way for a little while and said, maybe, maybe there's something I can learn from you and maybe there's some things that I'm not fully right in. And maybe we can both grow together. Do not let the counterfeit habit of friendship or surface-level connection, even if it's a spiritual-level connection, keep you from what God has meant for you in the context of true biblical community. Because if Jesus would set aside our differences in his right to his heavenly throne to die for us and serve us, it only makes sense that we as the church would do the same. And I'm praying that there is incredible growth that happens. As we realize the purpose of community was never to make us happy, but simply to make us holy. And that's a pretty enjoyable process. Let's pray. God, I ask that you would help us with all the questions and all the conflictions and all the how do you navigate it and how do you figure it out. And God, I honestly just pray that that would drive us to a dependency on you. We know that we oftentimes, like the Jewish leaders, like to make rules so we don't have to deal with the ambiguity, ambiguity of your commands. The messiness of it, the tension of it, God. But if you would not avoid the messiness or the tension or the disagreements that we would have with you, if you wouldn't avoid the ways that we would alienate you, that we would rebel against you, but you would take all of that and know full well that you are God, but not consider your Godness something to be leveraged and put in our face, but you would put that aside and you would die for us, serve us, so that we could know you. I pray that we would do that together. I pray against the idolatry of disunity if we put anything but you, Jesus, ahead of you. If we divide over politics, if we divide over social ideologies, if we divide over what we think or how we feel or what our preferences, preferences are for music or for worship, God, I pray that anything that divides us outside of you, Jesus, would be seen as idolatry because, Jesus, we just simply want to know you better. And would you give us the ability to sit in that tension? Would you give us the ability to sit in that way? But would you use that in our lives where 
iron sharpens iron, where we help one another up, where we carry one another's burdens, and we would be a church who actually looks like you, Jesus, that in a lost and a hurting and a broken world, in a broken world that desperately needs to see you, a world that desperately needs to see how you, a loving God, loved us, sacrificed for us, in spite of the fact that we were not lovable and didn't deserve it. I pray that they would see that through us and perhaps turn and worship you. Would you help us to see you through the eyes of we, not the eyes of me? Knowing that oftentimes surface-level friendship or surface-level spirituality can be the greatest deterrent from really knowing you, Jesus, through the context of community. And though each one of us are at different places in life and different points of next steps, God, would you give us the wisdom to know what to do, the wisdom to see clearly what to do, and the courage to do it. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.